Bibles, if you will, please, to Judges chapter 14. 14. Judges chapter 14. We need to review. We haven't been here in a few weeks. Judges chapter 14, verse 1. You will recall that God wants to use Samson's separation from the Philistine culture to bring his people back to himself. Why does he want to... Why, does he, why has he called Samson uh, to be separated? Because his people have assimilated. And so he chooses one to be separated to pull his people back out. They are so assimilated with the Philistines now that they have lost their identity. They're more afraid of upsetting the Philistines than they are of upsetting God Almighty. And so they have lost their way. Samson has, by definition of his Nazarite a vow, or the Nazarite vow has been acclaimed to him, if you will, uh, been set apart for service unto the Lord. He is holy, separated, consecrated unto the Lord for his service. Actually, he has been that way before he's even born. And the way that God has done it is by consecrating both Samson and his mother. Remember, she had to follow that as well until he was born, maybe perhaps afterwards. God also gives Samson incredible strength only when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon him and to accomplish the mission that he was born to accomplish. What is that mission? Well, you can find his mission in Judges chapter 13, verse 5. And uh, if you don't have it underlined, it should be now. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God. That seems pretty direct, doesn't it? Shall be a Nazarite to God uh, from the womb. And here is his mission he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, he's not the one who delivers them. Who delivers them from the Philistines? What's it? Well, of course, God does, but through whom? Through David, right? Through David. So you got a little while yet, but uh, Samson starts it here. That's, that's his mission from God. That's the ministry God has given him. So far, though, despite all of the advantages that God has given Samson to accomplish God's will, Samson has not exactly started off very well, if you will recall. First thing we see is that Samson cast his eyes upon a Philistine woman and demanded, much to his parents' dismay, go get her for me. And uh, why? Because she looks good to me, right? So it sounds very caveman-ish, doesn't it? Uh, Besides the fact that Samson was prohibited from marrying outside God's covenant people, remember that's in Deuteronomy Chapter 7, again, I'm just reviewing, that's why we're going so quick. Samson insisted that his parents oblige him, and despite their objections, in verse 3 of chapter 14, here's our, here's our famous verse, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. However, we find out in verse 4 that God is going to work despite Samson's apparent weaknesses. Nothing is going to thwart God's sovereign plan of peeling his people out of the clutching grasp of the Philistines, those pagans, not even Samson's lust of the eyes, not even his sexual appetite, not even his vindictiveness of his temper and his anger will stop God's plan from moving forward. Verses 5 and 6, then Samson goes down to Timnah with his father and mother. He comes as far as the vineyards, and behold, a young lion came roaring towards him. So as he's heading down there to arrange the marriage of Samson and the Philistine girl, a young lion attacks him as he reaches the vineyards. But as the lion attacks, what happens? The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, 
And literally, in the text, he rips it. I uh, pulls the jaws apart and really, literally rips the, the young lion in half. But I want you to note that the strength that Samson had is not innate strength. Remember, in Sunday school, we always teach, he looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger, doesn't he? He's always just muscles upon muscles upon muscles. But the text doesn't really say that. What's so amazing about Samson is this incredible strength when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And so he could just as easily look like a, an average guy, but when the Spirit of the Lord comes, that's what makes it so astounding. Clearly, the Lord's hand is upon him when that happens. Uh, so, however, by killing the lion, Samson has now valid, uh, violated his Nazarite vow, which we looked at in chapter 13. He's touched a dead animal, and he should have headed to the tabernacle for cleansing. He doesn't. He has, seems to have no appreciation for the significance of this vow which was given to him before he was even born. He, uh, despite being raised and trained up to do just that by godly parents, he has no intention of doing that. Why? Because he's consumed with his own desires. His own desires have superseded God's desires. So he's on his way to see the woman that he wants, but he doesn't even tell his parents what happened, nor does he head to the tabernacle for cleansing. He simply proceeds on his way to what he wants. Then in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 14, uh, when he returned later to take her, right? Uh, sometime later, Samson and his parents make yet another trip, and for some unknown reason, Samson goes out of his way to view the lion's carcass. Nevertheless, as Samson approaches the dead lion, he finds the bees have taken over the dead lion's carcass and have built a honeycomb in it. And that honey should have been off limits to both Samson and his parents touching dead things. Whether it's a Nazarite or not, he was, should have been touching dead things. But he does. And that doesn't stop Samson. He not only defiles himself again by touching an unclean animal, but he scoops them out and gives it to his parents, thereby defiling them as well. He's really being driven here again by his own lust. There doesn't seem to be any second thoughts. We don't see anything in the text that seems that he even gives it a thought. He just does it. And uh, he's not demonstrated in any sense in the text so far that he has the slightest inclination to do what God has called him to do. In fact, so far in our text, it's suspiciously obvious that he's not talking to the Lord at all. He's not spoken to the Lord at all in our text. He's not seeking the Lord. He's not talking to the Lord. He's not attempting to live for the Lord. Then in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 14, we see here that Manoah, that's Samson's father, met formally with the bride, perhaps accompanied by her parents, and, and some sort of agreement is reached. At this point, the couple are engaged, which was followed by a customary feast. That word feast in the Hebrew means what? Drunken celebration, right? It would typically last seven days. The marriage would not be consummated to the last day, the seventh day of the feast. And since he's a foreigner in town, the Philistines provide 30 guests for him. Then in verses 12 through 14, uh, here in the midst of this drunken party, Samson proposes a riddle to the Philistine men who are there, or guests, uh, or family members of the bride. And he tells them if they figure out this riddle by the end of the week, that he will buy them 30 changes of clothes. Well, the riddle turns out to be more difficult than the Philistines had expected. And they have no, uh, as time passed, the answer is not forthcoming. So they become a little bit concerned. They have no intention of pulling out that kind of 
money, which would have been very expensive, very expensive at that time. So they decided to take a more devious route. What do they do? Well, in the on verse 15, we see as it came about to the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband so that he will tell us the riddle or we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Is this not so? So they threatened to do bodily harm to Samson's wife and her father, literally burn them, uh, burn their house down, if she didn't get the answer uh, from Samson and give it to them. So Samson's bride knows that they mean business, so she sets about the task of getting Samson to reveal the answer. So she begins weeping as her uh, turns on the waterworks. Here we go, verse 16 and 17. Uh, crying day after day after day during the feast of Samson's wife. He, he could... Because he couldn't tell the answer to the riddle, just drove him about crazy. Finally, on verse 17, on the last day of the wedding feast, Samson breaks, tells his wife to the, the meaning of the riddle. She then runs to the Philistines and the men and gives them the answer. In verse 18, the Philistine men then approach Samson with the answer to the riddle. No question in Samson's mind how they figured this out and how they acquired it. So in verses 19 and 20, he stomps off in a huff, determined to pay his debt in a way that would make the Philistines pay for their treachery. Now notice how Samson views this. It's their treachery, even though he's the one who kind of instigated this whole thing. Verse 19, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. He goes down to Ashkelon, which would have been one of those five major Philistine cities, right? They have lords over each one. Uh, but far enough away from all those attending the wedding feast that they wouldn't make the connection, and he kills 30 men and takes their clothes and returns to present to each of the groomsmen. Then, uh, in the rest of verse 19, he goes back to his hometown, probably to cool down or to vent his anger. Uh, anyway, he leaves his Philistine wife, and he goes to spend some time with his parents. Remember, the marriage is not consummated to the last day, and this happened on the morning of the last day, so this marriage is not consummated yet. And so they're still in the betrothed period or engaged period, even though they're having the wedding feast. Verse 20, Samson then paid the father of the woman he was to marry, agreed upon dowry. She legally belonged to him as his wife. However, instead of her being given to Samson, her father gave her to the Samson's best man. Unbeknownst to Samson, he had been cheated by the bride's father, in his view. That brings us to chapter 15. Samson decides to return to claim his bride at the time of the wheat harvest, which is probably a good idea because everybody's out in the fields, so he could just go and talk to the father. This time he brings whatever young man should bring when he's courting some young woman, a goat he brings. And once he arrives, the young woman's father, now come on ladies, how many of you could re, you couldn't resist that, could you? If a young guy showed up with a goat in his hand? Okay. Anyway, once he arrives, the young woman's father uh, informs Samson that he no longer, uh, that he thought he didn't desire his daughter uh, since he had left and he had given her to his companion. He says, however, you could have her younger sister. She is more beautiful than the one that you had originally. That you, Once again, Samson's really mad, and he feels he's been defrauded. So in verse 3, he, he's angry again, and his passion takes over, and he uh, seeks revenge yet again. In his rage, he walks down toward the Philistine territory, and he collects torches, and he uh, ties them. He captures 300 foxes, probably jackals, uh, ties their tails together, 
then lights a slow-burning torch that's attached to them and sets them free in the Philistine fields. And, uh, of course, the Philistines are infuriated. They just lost their crop, their entire crop. And in response, they head off to Tibna, where they promptly burn Samson's betrothed bride and father-in-law. Now, don't miss the irony here. The reason that she stopped, right, the reason that she went and and, uh, deceived Samson to get it was so that they wouldn't burn her house down. Now they burn her house down and her and her father in it. So it ends up costing her her life either way. So, uh, after hearing the news, he's even more enraged. He swears one more act of revenge. Uh, Verse 8, he commences a great slaughter upon the Philistines and then hides in the cleft of a rock near his home. Verses 9 to 11, then the Philistines went up. This is where we were last time. They've had enough, so they pulled together an army to capture and bind Samson once and for all. Look at that, chapter 15, verse 9. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah and spread out in Lehi. The men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, We have come up to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. Now the Philistine army, we find out later, is how many men? 1,000 men they bring for one guy. 1,000 men for one guy. That's a testimony to how much a threat they view Samson as being. One guy, thousand men for one guy. Uh, The Israelites are alarmed at such a great amassing of troops, a thousand there. They say, why have you come up against us? You see that in verse 10. The Philistines assure the Israelites that their only intention is not to harm them, but to capture Samson. And sadly, though, rather than resisting the Philistines and saying, hey, This is a fellow Israelite here. We'll handle the matter. What do they do? Well, they... So then they gather 3,000 of their men to help them capture him, which would certainly mean the death of Samson. So we see here that the only army that was ever formed in Israel during Samson's reign is this army to help the Philistines come and arrest Samson. Israel's judge. Now think about that for just a second. They no army this entire time. They've been oppressed now for a long time, right? This is the longest oppression. Notice that the Israelites have become so assimilated with the Philistines, they no longer see them as the oppressors. They are so integrated into the fabric of pagan life that they don't even recognize that these are the enemies of God. That these pagans are, uh, you know, they're worshiping their god Dagon, and uh, uh, that's who they—that's who they worship. They're not; these are not followers of Yahweh. They have their own. These are pagans, and yet the the Israelites are so assimilated in; they don't even recognize that they have compromised so much again and again and again. They no longer recognize they are slaves to the oppressors. In fact, when the 3,000 men go to Samson's hiding place to capture him, look at verse 11. They actually rebuke Samson. Look at that. Verse 11, they say to him, uh, they went down the cleft to the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Who rules over Israel? God rules over Israel. Listen, that's a tremendous statement, isn't it? Do you not know? Then, look at that. What then is this you have done to us? 
unbelievable. They are so, they're so far along in their assimilation, they have forgotten they are actually God's children, not Philistine slaves. How very sad this is for God's chosen people. They are so assimilated, they actually believe that this bondage is normal. And they cannot even imagine a time when this wouldn't be the case. They even see Samson, the one that God has sent to deliver them from this bondage, as the real threat instead of the people who are actually oppressing them. They they are so assimilated, they would rather turn the one God has sent to deliver them over to God's enemies than risk confrontation with God's enemies. They would rather forsake God than be unfaithful to the world. Think about that for a minute. So verse 11 continues, when asked why they had done such a thing uh, to them, Samson merely responds to the same manner as the Philistines had in verse 10. He says what? As they did to me, I have done to them. Revenge. Once again, no remorse, no thought of how his actions may affect others. He simply sees vengeance as nothing more than a response to their deceitfulness. Verse 12 then, we see here in chapter 15. They said to him, Why? We have come down to bind you so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me. So they inform him of their mission to bind him and turn him over to the Philistines, and he offers them no resistance. They must have been expecting some resistance, or they wouldn't have brought how many men? 3,000 men. Three times the number the Philistines did. He agrees on one condition. They must not kill him himself. Verse 13. So they said to him, uh, No, no, but we will bind you fast and give you into their hands. Yet surely we will not kill you. Then they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. Now you can't, again, miss the irony here. Uh, They're going to bind him and hand him over. We won't kill you, Samson, but... Would you mind if we bind you and turn you over to these guys so they can kill you? We're the good guys here. Anyway, uh, these once proud warriors, let's not forget in Judges chapter 1, these are the same Israelites, right? I mean, this is, this is the same. These are God's chosen people in, in, uh, in Judges chapter 1 who were fighting these enemies, right? They were mighty warriors. Look how far they have fallen once they assimilate. It's been a gradual process, right? gradual process. What a sad day it must be for the Lord when his people would be would rather be assimilated with his enemies than stand faithfully with him in victory. And isn't it amazing that they are subject to the very people who God gave them victory over? They are subject now to the same people God had already was already victorious over. Verses 14 to 17 then when he came to Lehi the Philistines shouted as they met him I'm sure that was a great war cry. Woo, they, we got him, we got him. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him so mightily so that the ropes that were on his arms were as flax that is burned with fire and his bonds dropped from his hands. So they let out this great war cry. We've got Samson, finally got him. He's bound, nothing he could do. These are new ropes. They're not going to snap. But at that moment, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him mightily. He snaps the ropes as though they were burned off of him. And they fall to the ground. Verse 15 then. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, so he reached out and he took it. He kills a thousand men with it. 
Now, the, so empowered by the Holy Spirit, he picks up a fresh jawbone as a don, of a donkey as a weapon against an enemy. He is outnumbered 1,000 to 1. Just give you an idea here. Note that the bone is fresh, which means it's not it, it's pliable and not brittle, so it wouldn't break. He makes quick work of the thousand men and leaves them in heaps of dead bodies as he goes. What probably happened is they were probably starting to run. He caught up to them and would kill them. They'd probably turn around to uh, fight with them, and he killed them, and then chased some more. And anyway, there's heaps of bodies around. Verse 16. Uh, then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. So he makes short work of his enemy, and then he taunts them yet again with another pun. There's another word for donkey that would have been commonly used in this agrarian age, and the Bible uses it many times as well. Unfortunately, it's been corrupted by our world, and it doesn't mean what it used to mean, so it's not suitable for the pulpit. But I only mention that because this pun is a little wordplay in the Hebrew language. So the word for heap is also mass. So I'll let you work through that one on your, on your own time. But translating that word as it's written in our text today, Samson's pun would go something like this. With the jawbone of a bleep, I have piled them into heaps. That's kind of what he's basically saying. Okay? Just let you work through that. He then subsequently gives the place a new name, Ramath Lehi, which would translate as Jawbone Hill. Jawbone Hill. Immediately afterwards, we see something in the account of Samson we have not seen. Look at verse 18. Then he became very thirsty, and he called to the Lord. This is the first time in our text. You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? <laughs> so after disposing of the thousand men, Samson is undoubtedly thirsty. He calls out to the Lord for relief. This is the very first time that we have seen Samson call out to the Lord. He does again in the next chapter. In fact, he even credits the Lord for the victory over the Philistines. He asked the Lord to provide him some water so he would not die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised Philistines. Look at verse 19. So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi so that water came out of it, and when he drank it, his strength returned, and he revived. Therefore, he named it En-Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. So the Lord graciously provides the water. The text tells us he drinks it, and as soon as he drinks it, he's immediately, his strength comes back. He promptly renames the spot En-Hakor, which means the spring of him that called. The spring of him that called. Verse 20, then, we're left with this final statement. So he judged Israel 20 years in the days of Philistines. And we'll look at that more next time. Oh, we're out of time here, but here's what I want to leave you with some closing thoughts here. Some commentators believe that this is the high point of Samson's judgeship right here. Right here, when he calls out to the Lord. As in this prayer, he recognizes, notice, that it's the Lord who's working through him for victory, as well as recognizing his own dependency upon the Lord, right? He couldn't get water himself. He's so thirsty, he's lost his strength. What does he do? At that point, then, he calls out to the Lord, recognizes the Lord is the one who has given him victory, also recognizes his dependency upon the Lord. 
And yet, right after he does those two things, he questions whether the Lord will allow him to die and fall into the hands of the Philistines. Which is very contradictory. How can this be? The answer is spiritual blindness, which we're going to see in the next chapter. Chapter 16, because there's a physical blindness and a spiritual blindness that happens in the next one. But all throughout this account, we've seen the Lord use Samson in mighty ways. And even though Samson... Uh, has been chosen and consecrated for this specific mission, his own heart is not consecrated unto the Lord. you notice that? All throughout this account, God has worked despite of Samson. Despite Samson's anger, despite Samson's vengeance, despite his lusts, the Lord still accomplishes what he has decreed will happen. But it certainly makes us wonder what the Lord would have accomplished in Samson if he had consecrated his life unto the Lord. What if he had just cooperated somewhat? Beloved, have you yielded your life to the Lord to be consecrated completely to him? Or are there parts that you've kind of set aside? Is it your desire to not allow anything in your heart that would not glorify God? I pray that's so. I pray you've not become so blinded spiritually that you cannot see how assimilated you are into the world, that you get so caught up into the world that you forget that you're supposed to be in the world but not of the world, that you forget that you too have been consecrated and set aside, that you too have been declared righteous by God through your faith in him that your life is supposed to be different. You're supposed to be light in the midst of darkness. You're supposed to be salt, light and salt into the world. It's so easy for us to look at Samson's life, isn't it? And say, boy, he has all the advantages, right? God has specifically chosen him before he's born. He gives him godly parents in a time in Judges where everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Things are wicked all around him, but not for Samson. And yet, notice here that Samson did not recognize or, or chose not to live his life as one consecrated upon the, unto the Lord. Did it stop the Lord's purposes? No. No, the Lord's still going to do that. But how much more mightily could Samson have been? What a great judge. Now, actually, he ends up in the hall of faith. We see him in Hebrews chapter 11. But here's another, yeah, here's another example of, a, of someone who how much more could have been if they had just recognized they were consecrated unto the Lord and had lived their life that way. How far away from a consecrated life each of us may be living, not realizing that we too are assimilating into the world. If our lives look so much like the world that we can't tell the difference, if we blend in so well with unbelievers that nobody can tell we're a believer, that should be a red flag to us that there's a problem in our life. If we look like everybody else, sound like everybody else, talk like everybody else. I mean, uh, Becky and her grandchildren, she's, she knows in her heart that when she comes to church, those people will be different. They won't be doing the things her grandchildren are doing. That's a good testimony, is it not? Even though she doesn't know us yet, her expectation is you will be doing different things and will not think that that's acceptable. And she doesn't think it's acceptable either. She just doesn't know what to do. But what a testimony. That should be the testimony for believers is that we would be different from the world. 
I think it's easy for us to sit and throw stones at Samson and say, oh, look at that, you just chased your own lust. You, you know, you lost your temper, you're, you're vengeful. But look around him at how many people, all of these people are supposed to be consecrated unto the Lord, not just Samson. All of them. These are God's chosen people, but they're so blended in, they can't see the difference. That's called spiritual, yes, that's spiritual blindness. We'll see more of that next time. Okay, we're out of time. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the reminder of how easy it is for us to be spiritually blind. Lord, to live our life looking an awful lot like the world. And Lord, to be so assimilated in, we forget that we are called, Lord, also to be light in the midst of this darkness. We are called to be salt, Lord. We are called to be different. We're in this world, but not of this world. This is not our home. Lord, our home is with you. And so I pray, Father, that we'd be mindful of that and live our lives in a way that would clearly mark us as different once set apart or consecrated unto you. I pray, Lord, that that would be a powerful testimony to the world. It's not easy, Lord, as you know, to live our lives that way, but it's what you've called us to do. May we, Lord, live that life for your honor and glory. In Christ's name we pray.